a world of Jew lies and propaganda, there is an island of white discussion, entertainment, truth. Free Talk Live is that island. Free Talk Live with your host, Jeff Beck. Only on the Vanguard News Network. Okay, you there, Robert? Yes, sir. Okay, I hear you fine. And let me make sure we're broadcasting. Uh, make sure the levels are good. Yeah, yeah, we're, we're, we're doing fine. And so uh, unlike uh, uh, last time we hooked up, after, <laughs> a, after several other uh, uh, suspensions, we, uh, we we're having no technical difficulties tonight. And uh, so, anyway, welcome back to the broadcast. And I'd like, I'd like to first say a little bit about uh, Robert. He's uh, a co-host on... Um, uh, you guys say ANSWIP, A-N-S-W-P? Is ANSWIP, does it, you ever say it that way? I've never heard that said, no. I kind of I like it, but maybe not. He's a co-host on, uh, on, on that radio program with Bill White. And, and of course, he's been a long-time contrib- uh, poster here on VNN Forum. And um, you had a... We played, um, uh, Robert, we played um, a clip from uh, James Mason's, and I know you're familiar with this book, uh, Siege, and it was 17, and uh, you know, he talked about um, what, what, what reminded me of this, of this clip was, um, this uh, chapter 17, was he talked about the damage that uh, the Laurel and Hardy stunts Due uh, to the Nazi movement, and you know, uh, what reminded me of this was that um, was those uh, three guys that are running for pre- uh, the guy that's running for president, um, and he he was in a, a photo, uh, uh, the Times of London or something, uh, picked up his presidential run. This this Nazi, uh, I forgot what what group he's in. And it was all rather silly and childish, and it was it was lampooned, and and Mason was talking about. You know these sort of Laurel and Hardy stunts, and how you know if if the Nazi movement we, we shouldn't we shouldn't um, uh, expose our the uniform of the Nazis uh, to ridicule because you know a lot of a lot of good men uh, went down uh, fighting in that uniform, for instance, and um, and so I thought that we played that. Uh, we played that chapter tonight. I don't. I don't remember if you know if you remember that particular chapter or not. I do recall yeah. some statements to that effect. I, I'm not a member of any organization at the moment, mm-hmm. and uh, I'm not real f- uh, fond of the uh, uniform approach. But mm-hmm. uh, that's that's Bill's decision. He's chosen to go with that. And uh, yeah, you had a very <laughs> good post upon uh, about this. Um, how how you're not just a, a week or so ago, and and your feelings about you know. Wh- uh, about the Nazi movement and and what it what it can what it can mean for us today, but uh, Mason was talking in, the, in this particular chapter about the 1933 approach and and how you know things are not what they were in 1933 and and even uh, the approach that Rockwell uh, took uh, in in the, in the early to mid 1960s. Uh, even he Mason was even saying you know that now is is defunct. And it's not operable. Well, Rockwell was quite reactionary, and he favored the police a lot and stuff like that. Just like in Hitler's time, he had a lot of support, or he perceived that he had a lot of support among mainstream Germans, even uh, you know judges and policemen and stuff like that. 
Uh, I think with Rockwell's case, he perceived the support more than it was really there, where in Hitler's case, he really did have the support of the rank-and-file Germans. But Rockwell certainly wrote some uh, very reactionary material in his, in his works that is uh, no longer valid in that sense. But I look up to Commander Rockwell. I always have. He, uh, he was a very courageous man, and uh, he did his best. And uh, I, I gained some deeper respect for Rockwell as a thinker and uh, as, a, as a man... In general, when I read his correspondence with Savitri Devi, which was recently uh, posted up on uh, SavitriDevi.org, and you can go ahead. Pardon me. Go uh, ahead. Yeah, it's uh, www.SavitriDevi.org, and uh, you can find the correspondence. There's about four or five letters posted between her and George Lincoln Rockwell, and they have the back and forth there. Uh, discussing the, the meaning of National Socialism, and uh, they have one of the articles that Savitri Devi wrote for uh, Rockwell's newspaper, and it's, uh, it's sort of not her style, <laughs> so a lot of people commented that it sort of uh, sounded rather superficial for Devi, but then uh, we found out that it was not written for uh, the intellectual journal of Rockwell, but rather for White Power, which was gen just the uh, street corner. Digest. Mm -hmm. See, Rockwell had the uh, internal journal that was for intellectual uh, discussions. And what was the name of that? Uh, National Socialist World was the oh, one. Oh, okay, yeah. Right. And, I think uh, Pierce edited that. Right, he did. Yep. And uh, I forget it would, but one was the, it was the one and the other. Trooper was the other one. Right. And uh, so, so it was a pretty superficial article, not really worthy of her uh, scholarly insight, but. She was writing it for just an introduction to people uh, who were uh, picking this, like, you know, sort of like you guys used to do with the Aryan Alternative. It was a publication that was to be thrown out, widely distributed to try to, uh, you know, open up some minds. But, uh, yeah, I would uh, recommend everyone go check out SavitriDevi.org, which is a great resource and has some great uh, correspondence that I've never read before recently archived by this uh, this gentleman. He's also releasing a lot of her works. He released uh, a, compil a compilation of her interviews that she did with Ernst Zundel in 1978 wow. under, under the title uh, And Time Rolls On. There were only 200 hardcover copies put out, and uh, now they're printing them in softcover. And also, he just released a hardcover version of uh, Gold in the Furnace, which I'm expecting in my mailbox any day now. So he's going to be releasing each and every one of her works in a, a very limited edition, hardcover, cloth edition. And they, they come out very nice, especially uh, the first book. It has a very thorough index. And I have a copy of the original tapes, but they can be very hard to hear because it's quite distorted. And, you know, it's 1978 in New Delhi. And, and there's been a lot of uh, copies made since then. So it was nice to have the... Uh, the book to follow along with the transcript. You know, I, I have to confess, Robert, I have never read anything other than maybe an essay or something by Savitri Devi, and and I, I really, I, and I think I'm, I'm, this is true for a lot of people listening tonight, Robert, and this is one reason why you're on, and um, what, I think, in so much, insofar as people know anything about this lady, they, they, they they know that she somehow was a mystic or something like that, but but uh, maybe that's not a fair characterization of her. I mean, uh, she, so she she was very active in in with the Nazis. Uh, uh, was she active with the Nazis, uh, the, the National Socialist Party, the National uh, NSDAP, or t tell us more about this lady? And is is she just sort of some spiritual uh, uh, theologian, or is there something more to her? 
Uh, sure. She was born in France. Uh, she was of uh, Greek and uh, English heritage. And uh, she was a, a polymath right off. She, she was incredibly brilliant. She spoke uh, about seven different languages. Uh, she had a, a doctorate in, uh, I believe it was chemistry or, or mathematics, one of those. So she was well-versed in, in pretty much every subject. Uh, she came to embrace National Socialism fairly early in life. Uh, she, believe it or not, when she was on uh, a pilgrimage to Palestine, that's when she actually had her conversion to National Socialism. But er, early on in life, she'd, uh, she'd always been turned off by the ideas of the, of the French Revolution, which were so pervasive in French culture at the time. And she'd always seen the egalitarian notions that were underpinning it as rather hollow and having no you know, connection with reality. And, and so she developed uh, an affinity for Aryan culture and uh, thereby national socialism, since it was the vanguard of Aryan culture at the time. And uh, since she was not a German, and uh, she was very fond of the ancient Aryan homeland of India, she traveled there and uh, decided to do her Hindu missionary work there. She worked for the Hindu mission for a while. Uh, she put out a booklet called uh, A Warning to the Hindus, uh, basically telling them that their way of life and their religion was uh, greatly threatened. Uh, and she was basically working with her. She married a, an Indian, a Brahmin man named uh, Mukherjee. But uh, their relationship was uh, never consummated, so to speak. She married him only to uh, avoid ending up in prison by the British because she was, uh, she was actively fomenting revolution and national socialism in India during her time there. And World War II was raging, so uh, they, the British were interning anyone who was uh, trying to stir up trouble against them, and uh, she was certainly on the list. So, oh, so she was in India at, during the war, um, basically uh, pl making the cause of the, of the Germans, of the Nazis. Yes, uh, very much so. Her... Her husband, uh, Mukherjee, uh, put out the only National Socialist newspaper in India, which was called The Mercury. And uh, they had a great relationship, but were nothing more than friends. She married him, actually, so she could get a, uh, a British passport and thus be able to travel into Europe. And uh, she actually didn't get to nationals. <laughs> it's funny, because it, while everyone else was running away from the Reich, Savitri was running in. And it's, it's, it's uh, appropriate to call her Savitri rather than Devi because Devi is just a title that uh, is given to any Brahmin or Aryan woman in, in India. So Savitri actually arrived there in uh, 1945, or, uh, 1950 I believe it was, uh, in, the, in the ruins of Germany. And she would uh, go around, hand, she spent all her money. Uh, buying food for the starving Germans and uh, printing up literature for them. Mm -hmm. And she would go around and hand, them, hand like a German family a, a loaf of bread and wrapped up with it would be a uh, statement that says, uh, you know, you're the gold in the furnace. Let the furnace blaze and roar, but it shall never harm you. And you know, your glorious Fuhrer shall return. Stay fast to the National Socialist ideals, and, you know, et cetera, et cetera, urging the people to not renounce their Wildenschauung but to stay committed to their ideals and wait for the return of the Fuhrer or, or of the man who would replace him. And uh, she was actually arrested there for her uh, subversive activities, quote-unquote, and spent some time in prison with some SS women. 
<laughs> and she was delighted to make their acquaintance and, and uh, wrote quite favorably of all the national socialists she met in her book, Pilgrimage, which is about her, her pilgrimage to Germany in the uh, post-war era. And uh, her husband actually endeavored to get her out of prison, and at first she refused to go because she was having so much fun there with her kameraden. <laughs> but eventually he prevailed upon, persuaded her to uh, come back home and was able to uh, get her released and uh, she left Germany, and she's she's written uh, a lot of great works. Her, her first, her most uh, famous work is uh, the Lightning and the Sun, and uh, that's her magnum opus for sure. If someone, if someone wanted to uh, begin reading a book by Savitri Devi, that would that might be the one to to start with. Yeah, I definitely recommend uh, the Lightning and the Sun. It's uh, it's basically. Uh, <clears throat> She, she puts forward the hypothesis that uh, all world leaders have been lacking uh, a combination of these, well, all modern world leaders have been lacking the combination of, of qualities that, that make the, the perfect leader. Uh, she, she uses three people, uh, to uh, three historical personalities to prove her hypothesis. She takes uh, Akenton, the, uh, the king of uh, Egypt, who uh, tried to restore the, uh, the sun worship, and uh, <clears throat> she says he's too much sun, all sun. And then she takes Genghis Khan, who she says is all lightning, you know, all warfare. And then she, uh, she adds Adolf Hitler, who is both the perfect combination of uh, lightning and sun. Both, you know, the, the destructive impulse and the, uh, the transcendent quality of uh, being you that know, he personified. Well, we're we're on we're on this level right now uh, of talking about kind of kind of uh, uh, more uh, ethereal uh, concerns, I, I suppose, and and we um um <clears throat> oh, excuse me, I kind of lost my train of thought. Uh, oh yeah, okay, sorry, uh, kind of lost my concern. But a lot a lot of us uh, on VNN forum. Uh, and to myself, and this includes myself to some degree. Uh, we we come out of a of a Christian background, and a lot of us are very unhappy with our time uh, as children and young adults uh, in Christian churches and and so forth like this. And and we've become essentially, I think many of us have become atheists, uh, and others have become uh, somewhat uh, scientific materialists. You know, we we see. Uh, uh, you know, evolution at work, and we see the biological basis of life, and and we want to understand that, and uh, we are a lot of us are reluctant to entertain the idea that there's that there's some sort of um, uh, less than tangible aspect behind the national socialist movement, and and should should we entertain ideas, you know that that uh, you know. There are obviously some some uh, some pagan themes that were at work in in Nazi the National Socialist movement uh, National Socialism excuse me uh, should we really entertain these ideas? Of course, <laughs> uh, I don't think that uh, like uh, th- these days many Christians come to Christianity through uh, an immediate epiphany. They sort of have this re- reborn. <laughs> they're they're born again, so to speak, and and uh, suddenly they're fully Christian. They've embraced this whole world view, 
Whereas returning to uh, your natural worldview is something that happens over, over a, a lengthy process. It's not something that just happens to you overnight. Rather, it's, it's a slow process of, of attuning yourself to native ways and, and discarding alien ways. And w when uh, you realize that, you know, you have these, these ideas in your head that have uh, been put there by Jews and, <laughs> and are not serving your interests, then you need to uh, discard them. And, and replace them with more healthy views, and that, that's a, that's a long process. It's not something that just happens overnight. Oh well, tell us. You know, one of the things that you know, I I, I wanted to have you on because uh, one of the longest uh, one of the longest uh, uh, threads I think we had on the VNN blog was a was, was a thread about Odinism, and and you uh, defended your position on there, and I, I kind of wanted to give you a chance. To, def to talk about uh, Odinism, and uh, I, I, I think it's important that we talk about this. This was this was the religion of our ancestors, and and I also believe that uh, this was a religion that evolved along with us for uh, uh, thousands of years, and 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 shaped our character and, and our outlook. And I do think that Christianity. I, I find the Middle Ages to be a very fascinating time, and there, are, you know, there are, and and, and the blending of uh, these uh, concepts, these pagan concepts in Christianity is, is, is a very interesting story. You know, one that was talked about by Julius Evola. But, you know, I, I, if you, are you, uh, is, the, does the term practicing Odinist make any sense? Uh, sure, it does. But okay. uh, you, you don't really need to put all these names on it. Uh, okay. It's just the ancestral religion that anyone should follow. I mean, it, it's what Evola calls the aggregates of primordial tradition. Odinism is what we're calling it today, but it's just our religion that acknowledges the gods by fostering thought as opposed to Christianity, which fosters pure dogma which fosters courage as opposed to Christianity, which fosters, <clears throat> you know, self-abnegation, -ab self-debasement, cowardly actions, and uh, honor, light, beauty. It's just uh, things that reflect our inherent soulscape. The, the gods are as much born of us as we of them. As, you know, as someone, you know, who's never really investigated this, and do, do Odinists, if I'll use this term, and or there are other terms that we could use if you're more comfortable with, and and I actually find it somewhat interesting. I'm I'm speaking to you as someone who is is friendly to this to this discussion. Uh, I mean, is there any sense of ritual involved in these type of things, or or is it is it so multifaceted and diverse? Uh, you know, the concept of a ritual of a liturgy is not really even applicable. I used to. Uh use the term odalist to s describe my worldview and okay. uh, to differentiate it from the non-folkish brands of Odinism that are, are out there today, that these, uh, <clears throat> these so-called acid-true kindreds which accept uh, Negroes and Jews and everything else. I mean, the, <clears throat> the gods only manifest themselves within their own ethnic matrix. Uh, you, you can pray to or, uh, worship any gods you wish or, you know, make the sacrifices to them, but with our own gods it's different, you know. There's a blood relationship to us. There are our ancestors. You know, it's I, not just some abstract notion that uh, was written by Jews in a book 2,000 years ago. It's a know, living culture. I'm uh, I'm quite uh, familiar with the Greek classics, and and I read them, you know, all through high school and college, and I still read them. And so, I, you know, I'm familiar with the Greek pantheon, and you know, one thing that that I get from the Greek pantheon 
uh, and and the Greek stories and, and the Greeks who lived in, in in these myths is that one uh, they didn't they didn't approach them in the same way that Christians do. They they at times could be very uh, uh, uninterested in 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 their gods and 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 uh and and you know not they it's not that they were um sacrilegious towards their ancestral gods but a lot of times they took a very kind of detached and uninterested kind of uh idea uh, approach to them and, and you know and they and they considered themselves to be somewhat of a master of their own destiny and you know not, you know certain heroes were like that uh certainly odysseus was to some degree you know very headstrong uh, and, and and so forth, um, and and you know a lot of, a lot of Greeks uh, that, that this kind of themes appear in Greek literature quite a bit, and and that you know they they didn't like I said they what also comes through in Greek literature is is the heroic aspect uh, of the human character, and and so this this is quite a you know difference between you know what you see in the uh, particularly in the, in the New Testament. Uh, with Christianity that came in, and you know, well, I, go ahead. Well, what's labeled religion today is not what our ancestors considered religion at all. To our ancestors, the potency of the right was what was important. The the transcendence through the right, the the uh, the apparition of, of true ideals, the the uh, merging with the absolute above and through the contingent by consolidation of the self. What I, what I mean is that, uh, you know, Evelis speaks in his uh, revolt against the modern world of, of the rights by which our ancestors could destroy the gods themselves. I mean, this is not a religion that... Yes, that, yes, exactly. Right. And the Gre- exactly. Greeks thought that way, too. It, it's, it's a perfectly Aryan worldview that's undergirded every traditional society. And, and that's my point. There really is no difference between the, the Greek myths and the Nordic myths. If, you know, if so many uh, philologists have spent time doing comparative mythology, and uh, there's so many uh, you know, similarities between all of these religions, the Celtic religion, the Germanic religion, and all of these religions were not about this, this sort of modern idea of belief, but about pure action and about the experience through the right. It wasn't about just, you know, honoring some anthropomorphic bogeyman who may or may not exist, but it was about achieving results right then and there, about being reborn through the right as an Aryan. You know, in uh, Vedic India, if, if you were born an Aryan, you, you didn't truly become Aryan. You needed the, the biological prerequisite, don't get me wrong, but... The race of the body wasn't enough. It was only when you you had the the race of the spirit as well, and and when you embodied that honor, that, right? Well, it, in the traditional society, all traditional societies are characterized by the presence of these beings who embody within the temporal order a living and, and vibrant manifestation of the power that comes from above. And that's the most important condition of the authority and aristocracy in that age. The reason that the masses submitted to them and worshipped them was that transcendent quality that made them more than human. And it, the, the, the masses were attracted to them by the same principle as that by which, you know, a magnet attracts metal. It wasn't, it, they weren't held in, in captivity by violence as the masses are today. And, you know, as, as more and more people acknowledge the ontological rank of what was before, 
and above the contingent dimension, these people were invested with greater natural sovereign power. And unlike decadent societies of later ages and exemplified by today, traditional societies ignored the modern idea that the roots of authority lay in temporal power. Sec secular qualities like wisdom or, or even intelligence or a small concern for the collective mere material success are, are what's seen as, as above everything today. But in the traditional world, the roots of legitimate authority always have a metaphysical character. And uh, when you start questioning that character, that, that's when things start going downhill. I think uh, Nietzsche was quite right when he's quite right rather when he said that uh, people who start discussing morals have, have already <laughs> you know they've already lost they're already in decline because if you're you're discussing morals you've already given up that which comes from from the above that, that that that's why I think the distinctions between capitalism and Marxism are largely illusory capitalism isn't the antithesis of Marxism because both these political systems place the economy at the center of existence they, they obfuscate the metaphysical principles that motivated action in healthier ages. You know, they, they have no concern for what is the root and the direction of true society. Just, just as the classical culture of Greece and Rome descended into the acceptance of primitive Christianity that was distinctly alien with its focus on the eschatological conditions of the huddled masses and the final world outlook of Stoicism, just as the Brahmanical Indian culture descended to Buddhism, in the Mahayana sense, and its retreat from aristocracy to commonality and resignation, so too the Western world is sinking into various forms of what can collectively be termed socialism in the, in the pejorative sense. These cultures were born from a higher conception of their existence. Their governments, their mores, their ways of life were all given from above. And when that, that spark of life is first questioned, in the Western world this was the Reformation. And, and the Upanishadic age in the Indian, the Dionysiac religion of the classical. It marks the first natural stage of self-criticism of the culture that eventually leads the focus of life and the culture itself downwards and into dissolution. This is, uh, re reminds me of the chapter in, uh, in Revolt of the Modern World that is quite interesting. And uh, this is the first time that I encountered this idea uh, this may have been two different chapters I'm blending into one, and it had to do with the decline of the Roman Empire, and it had always been explained to me that um, uh, in various, it is, this, this theme comes across in many authors, many mainstream historians, and, and, and not so mainstream historians, except that uh, you know, Rome was a mighty, mighty civilization, and that um, among many factors, the, the, the Germanic barbarians uh, overpowered this great these barbarians these um, these these uh, people who lived in huts and uh, and so forth and you know that were uh, beer swilling people who didn't you know wash their hair and all this this type of thing uh, came down from the north and sacked this uh, you know wonderful civ classical civilization but what Evola brings out in Revolt of the Modern World, and you fill in the details here if you like, Robert, but he points out that, in fact, uh, the, the Germans were um, quite an, uh, uh, an honor-based uh, society, and, and they actually saved what was left of the German Empire, I mean, of the uh, Roman Empire in the, in the West, and, and then rebuilt it and, gave it and gave it a new spiritual significance. And... and and did did the best that they could with with the cancer of Christianity, 
and uh, and 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 actually, uh, Evola makes the argument, uh, which I can't fill in all the details right now, that you know uh, the Germans were the saviors of Roman civilizations in in so far as it could be saved and salvaged. Uh, so much damage was already done to it, and you know uh, history should should really thank uh, the German tribes for coming in there. And and, uh, and and salvaging what was left. Well, th- there seems to be this idea in the Western world that the Germanic barbarians destroyed Rome, yeah. and nothing could be farther from the truth. By the time uh, Rome was fi- finally destroyed in 476, there was nothing of Rome and the original patriciate left. And if you read the books like the Germanization of Early Christianity, you can see the way in which Germanic culture was grafted onto Roman culture and really lifted it back up to the mm-hmm. level, it, 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 not to the level it had once seen at its heights, but certainly far above what it had been in the, in the declining recent years. And if you look at the early examples of Christianity in the Germanic world, they're, they're extremely Germanic. Look at the Heliand. You see Jesus represented as a warrior king, and his 12 apostles are 12 Frankish knights, and Jerusalem is a hill fort. And, you know, it's just, uh, they make, Christianity very Germanic in order to make it palatable to our people. And <clears throat> that's because Germanic people need a, a, a spiritual uh, worldview at the center of life, or, or the ideology descends into arrogance and self destruction. I think that all culture is really an outgrowth of the spiritual and religious. Uh, a friend of mine uh, said to use the example of uh, the hub of a wheel. The spokes all emanating out from it are the various areas of life, such as politics, culture, ethics. And in an archaic traditional society, such as the one Evola describes in Revolt, all facets of a civilization or culture are integrally bound to a spiritual source. Japanese culture is a a really good example of this. In all areas, whether spiritual, martial arts, gardening, poetry, painting, the same spirit underlies all of them. They're integrally one, and, and every action has, has a, a religious purpose. Nothing is, is meaningless. And, and that, that is where we are in the West today. We live in this hellishly fragmented world, culturally, spiritually. Everyone has 50,000 different identities, and not, none of them are really meaningful. There's no spiritual access at all. Access, rather. This, that's, that's what I'm trying to do with, with Odinism, on, is to provide... A, a central spiritual axis from which all other things fall into place and create a wholeness for our people. Yeah, in so far, I, I think that the one of the things that if we want to return to a kind of traditional, you call it esoteric, do you not? Uh, tradition is uh, esoteric and it's exoteric. It's a transcendent reality. What do these two? What do these terms mean? These two. two these two terms. Uh, esoteric just means hidden. Okay. So, so I, when, I, I said on that thread you were mentioning that uh, esoteric national socialism continues to retain its vitality. And by that I mean that <clears throat> national socialism was only one manifestation <clears throat> of the original Aryan worldview, only one manifestation of the eternal order of the sun in time, and that there will be other manifestations. They won't have the exact same political form, but they'll have the same spirit. And that's why I say that exoterically national socialism has run its point, its course, but esoterically it remains very powerful indeed. Uh, just uh, it, rem- it remains under the surface. Correct. 
you know, um, uh, jumping uh, uh, to uh, the 19th... Have you read Miguel Serrano uh, no, at all? No. Who's, <coughs> uh, who's Miguel Serrano? Miguel Serrano is uh, a prominent esoteric Hitlerist thinker from Chile. He, uh, <coughs> he's, he was on the... He was a... Uh, a pardon me, a uh, ambassador for several years from Chile to uh, Czechoslovakia to Austria. He was on the Atomic International Atomic Energy Commission. Uh, he's he's written some books which have uh, achieved some mainstream success, such as uh, Young and Hess, a, a record of two friendships. He he was uh, part of the Hermetic Circle along with Dr. Jung and uh, Hermann Hess. I'm not sure if you're familiar with the works of the two. Uh, oh yeah, Her- Herman Hess did the Siddhartha book. Yes, he did, and uh, Debian. So and what, what time were these people alive? This was in the 1920s. Uh, Miguel Serrano is still alive. I believe he's about a uh, hundred years old now. So <laughs> he started a uh, Chilean National Socialist Party in the 1930s, and he's written a number of books on esoteric Hitlerism. Uh, only a few of which are available in English, but I would definitely suggest you pick up his uh, Jung and Hess if you ever see a copy of it. It's a record of his friendship with the two and uh, their relationship through the Hermetic Circle. But anyway, what I wanted to say was uh, we're we're in the Kali Yuga right now, at the uh, nearing the end of the cycle, the Dark Age, and uh, Miguel Serrano compared the end of the cycle to to the end, to a harvest. He said that very few grains have matured, and uh, those are the ones we're going to have to work with. <laughs> so, uh, a- after the cycle completes, then th- there will uh, there'll be a chance for uh, a wider per- perception of uh, you know those views in in uh, in a new earth. He says, but you know that could be taken to mean a number of different things. Well, how d- how did how did the the how did people uh, who were interested in tradition uh, in in the Nazi movement, how did they work these themes into National Socialism? Or, or well, did I they? Think, I think National Socialism. Well, Ebola himself worked for the SS and was uh, he he was busy translating and uh, feverishly decoding Freemasonic documents. He was given access to all the uh, the, the work on the, the documents captured by the SS in the Freemasonic temples, and he was actually uh, shot and. Uh, ended up in a wheelchair when he was defending uh, Austria from uh, the Reds in uh, 1945, I believe it was. Shot in the third chakra, according to Marcia Eliot. <laughs> why, why, why was he uh, looking at Masonic writings? Uh, the SS had uh, asked him to uh, write, write, uh, do an investigation into the subject. Uh, he was a paid employee of the SS at the time, and... Uh, he wrote a paper for them called uh, a, hist- a History of Secret Societies. I don't know if it's ever been translated into English. I've only read parts of it. I don't believe it has. But he was working for the SS. And uh, there were a number of people uh, with, with distinctly, quote-unquote, traditionalist uh, inclinations in, in National Socialist Germany, including, I mean, most, most notably in the SS. Uh, I'm not sure if you've read... Uh, the SS family ritual book that's put out by Ulrich of England? No. No, uh, I could uh, mail it to you. I have, like, uh, yeah, you're, a PDF you're, copy. You're, you're very, I mean, you, you know a lot more things about this than I do, so I probably have not read anything 
uh, about this. Uh, I've read Evola uh, 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 and some essays uh, of Evola, but that's just really just about it. And you know, okay. I'm, you know, I'm, see, you know, let's, let's face it. Uh, National Socialist Germany, uh, you know, was um, was still a society that could still be termed Christian. And although it's not, uh, you see, I mean, we get kind of confused because the Christians around us are, you know, are utter lunatics, uh, most right. of them. And, and, you know, I mean, I, uh, Christianity wasn't nearly as sick and debilitating as it was in, 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 in 1930s Germany as it is now in this country. And, you, you know, you'd have, you'd, you'd even have people like Julius Stryker, who you know who would you know uh, use Christian themes in his propaganda pieces uh, to warn people about j- the threat that Jews face the, the, well, the f- to to uh, to Germany. Uh, the Führer often made contradictory statements about the nature of Christianity. Sometimes he would speak ill of it, and sometimes he would say he was doing the Lord's work. So, but I think we need to look at what he actually did rather than what he said. And what he did was remove all the uh, crosses from atop Christian churches and replace them with swastikas. He, did he uh, really? Yes, he did. He removed the Bible from schools and replaced it with Mein Kampf. He, <laughs> he scheduled Hitler Jugend meetings on Sunday during church hours and then made them compulsory for all youth, thereby negating the ability of uh, youth to attend church. He had Jesus and similar themes stricken from all uh, children's books and replaced with folkish ideas, with uh, etic figures and such. And uh, if you look at the SS, the SS was a a living heathen community. They they were not only openly leaving the church, but they were practicing the the heathen rites of our forefathers. And in this book, uh, Family Rituals of the SS, which is is translated from an original SS book by uh, Hermann Wirth, Who's done some? Uh, who was a, a great SS researcher and a uh, a heathen uh, traditionalist? Uh, <clears throat> you can see that they were actively practicing the old religion. They had brought it back, and uh, it, it was certainly not a large portion of society. But the SS elite, under Himmler's direction, were were reviving our ancient Germanic religion, and they were active. I think if uh, the Reich had continued. In the same vein as it was, we, it would have been openly heathen by 1970 or 80, with the new generation com- coming into uh, National Socialism without any of those Christian ideas clouding their head. And uh, National Socialist Germany was very successful toward that end, and uh, most people don't really investigate it too thoroughly because they only had 12 years. But what they accomplished in 12 years is truly remarkable. And I think you'll be uh, pleasantly surprised to see the degree to which they reintroduced heathenism in in the Reich among the SS. And these SS men openly left the church. Their marriages were uh, conducted according to SS rituals, which were based on the ancient Germanic rituals rather than Christian ceremonies. And uh, they were just moving completely away from that direction. Uh, Babelberg, which I I always mention and is in my uh, screen name, was a, a center of renewed religious life. I told you that uh, construction was supposed to continue there until 2025 and build up, you know, a real... Now, let's, let's slow down for a second. What, what, is, what, what is Babelsburg? Because a lot of Babels- people, I know this because you told me. Oh. T- so Babelsburg, tell the audience. Babelsburg is a, a castle. It's also a, a town in uh, Westfalia in Germany. Uh, it was a castle that uh, 
has a long and ho- uh, storied history, uh, but it was uh, taken and remodeled by Heinrich Himmler, and uh, <clears throat> it was the the headquarters of the SS and also of the Ananeba, the An- Ancestral Research Department, which is uh, best known for its research excursions to Tibet and things like that, and. Uh, it, it was a, a br- beautiful castle and uh, was was getting more beautiful by the day in National Socialist hands. Uh, it has now been being used as a youth hostel for Turks and other scum, unfortunately. But uh, to me, Babelsberg represents the loftiest ambitions of National Socialist Germany to to restore our people to a, a healthy and natural pattern of life. And uh, if you, if you look at the, the various uh, rooms in Babelsberg, you'll see that there are. Uh, there's a Valhall chamber for rituals where the uh, where the cre- cremated remains of SS heroes were to remain uh, forever. And uh, <laughs> there's a uh, well, well, listen, Robert. We, I want to talk more about Germany and, and, and remind me of the cremation thing because I want to talk about cremation versus burial and what Evola had to say about that and why our ancestors. If uh, I was just about to get into that, but, but <laughs> I've got what I've got. What I've got here is I've got a number of chat messages. And, 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 and we're holding a really good audience for this. People are, are quite interested in this, um, uh, 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 Robert. So let me see if I can, if I can, uh, if I can wade through these, uh, uh, comments here and try to summarize them. I've got a, a Tom that commented and I've got a, a Briseis that has commented. Um, let, let me start with, um, uh, Briseis's first here. Um, she says, uh, ask him about this. Uh, uh, I'm not so sure about the Norse gods. But can I say that in Greek, in the Greek pantheon, the Greeks were not, uh, the gods were not mortal, yet they were not held out to be perfect as the Christian god? In other words, it was a more reasonable or attainable goal to try to take on the characteristics of a god, but even they were not portrayed as perfect. Hephaestus had some physical disability, uh, and then Zeus was a kind of womanizer, uh, and, and many of these goddesses had their jealousies or competitiveness, uh, all very human qualities, in fact. Anyway, the point being that uh, in, uh, in the non-Christian belief system, we could be encouraged to be uh, better than mortal, yet not perfect. Uh, wanted your take on this. Evola speaks about the difference between gods and heroes, with heroes being those who have uh, in- initiated themselves uh, Purposefully, and those uh, gods being those who are just ordained, invested with power from above. But certainly, our gods are, are not like the Christian God in the sense that they're 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 mortal, first of all, <laughs> and uh, they're not all knowing. They're not omnipotent, but uh, they represent various aspects of our soulscape. For example, when I I, I make a bloat to tear, I'm strengthening that cell part of myself that tear represents. In, in this case, fidelity. And, and uh, you notice that that Thor, Thor is married to Sif. Uh, fidelity is married to kinship. That <laughs> that's no no accident there. So if you, if you look at at the hermetic aspects of the gods, once one, I mean uh, you can't just okay, what take do you, things. You're very you're very educated in this topic, uh, Robert. What do you mean by hermetic? Well, the hermetic aspect. What's that mean? Well, Below the surface, when you you know that it's not not everything is um, the, the myths are basically allegories. You you can't just take them at face value, and you you also have to remember that a lot of our myths, especially the Nordic myths, were transcribed by Christians. So there's a lot in there that isn't oh. original. Uh, so you you need to uh, 
sort of think about these things while you read them. It's a, it's a different sort of... Uh, see, with, with Christian hermeneutics, everything just is as it is. The, the, the That's another spirit, big word. What's hermeneutics? It's uh, the, the way of uh, in, investigating religion. It's uh, the way you perceive religion. For, you know, so, for example, uh, Christianity states that uh, the, the spirit is the letter. You know, what, what, what they say they mean. Whereas uh, with more allegorical religions, you have to uh, look at the spirit rather than the letter. You have to read between the lines, so to speak. Ah, okay. Whereas, uh, you know, the, the uh, Buddhist hermeneutics and Christian hermeneutics, for example, uh, are wildly different. Uh, but Christianity has a very straightforward system of analyzing its religious text, you know, they mean exactly what they say, <laughs> and, and that's yeah. uh, the Christian view And that, view and that of creates a lot of problems sometimes, especially when we live in a world with uh, with medicine and uh, uh, and uh, technology and biology, biological uh, and physical uh, laws. Um, yeah, well, well, I've got another uh, comment here from Tom. I just got another one that came in from Northhammer, but I wanted to ask you. I mean, uh, do you run in? Do, do we run into conflicts if we kind of? Start uh, uh, tuning ourselves into into tradition. I'll use that word uh, tradition, the traditions of our ancestors. Um, uh, uh, do we run into conflicts with uh, science? Do we run into conflicts with biology? Um, I don't think you really do. Uh, uh, you know, science used to be understood as something very different from what it is today. And it used to uh, have a spiritual a aspect to it, and uh, an aspect of the divine which it's lost. Uh, certainly, if we're talking about just vapid empiricists who refuse to look at, at at the two natures, as Evola would say, who would refuse to look beyond the physical bodies in time and space at all, then there's certainly going to be a conflict of worldview between such people. But I don't see biology as being incompatible. You know, general notions of biology are, are what they are. They're not incompatible with a traditional understanding. Uh, a traditional understanding just heightens them. You know, among the radical atheists, uh, I, I don't contain a lot of interesting ideas about, uh, about um, uh, these sort of matters. Okay, this is from uh, Tom. Um, let me see if I can uh, boil this down. Ask Robert his thoughts uh, uh, are on tradition and Odinism. Both subscribe to the coming end of times, the end of a cycle of, of uh, tradition, and the last uh, battle of the gods. Rag, this is a term we see on the forum every once in a while, Ragnarok. Uh, anyway, uh, I'll ask you how, you, how do you pronounce that, uh, Robert? Ragnarok. Oh, okay. Uh, I was just wondering if he could um, give his opinion on the comparison between the two. Uh, uh, I have been an Odinist for 20 years. I have only recently found radical traditionalism after reading Evola and others. I, I liken the two uh, world-ending events. It, it sounds obvious that they are that they're compar comparable, but not everyone sees it that way. Also, what does he think about the comparison between the end times of both of these religions' philosophies slash philosophies and the end times in the Mayan religion and the world coming to an end on the winter solstice of 2012? Um, this okay. Uh, this event is not only predicted by the Mayan religion, but many Western scientists as well. I am a devoted believer in Ragnarok. I guess as an Odinist for so long, I would have to be 
So a anyway, uh, traditionalism is, fasc- is traditionalism is fascinating to me as well. Though I am a dedicated national socialist, also, please tell Robert I enjoy listening to him on Free Talk Live, and I love Savitri Devi as well. Have read all of her work. Anyway, so that was a lot. You you might have uh, missed some things in there. So uh, okay, what do you think about that, Robert? Uh, the story of Ragnarok is uh, is of course uh, very very. Uh much intertwined with tradition, as uh, the 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 Asir are, are reborn after Ragnarok, and uh, they once again get the. Hold on, Jeff. Are you all right, sweetie? Yeah. All right. Uh, so sorry. That's My all right. Woman's right. making noise in the background. Anyway, she was lifting something. Anyway, <laughs> so uh, yeah. Okay. So uh, tradition and. Obviously, I don't think the two are incompatible since I am both a radical traditionalist and a odalist. But a uh, the story of Ragnarok is uh, basically the story of the cataclysm at the end of time. It's it's uh, comparable to any of the of the uh, stories of, of traditional carnage. And uh, when you talk about uh, Ragnarok, you you see. Uh, in, in, in every traditional society, there, there's a similar theme. When in uh, in Tibet, they consider uh, the the lost king of Shambhala, the uh, Kalki Avatara, to be from the north and to be uh, you know a product of, of of the same religious current. And so uh, when you when you're talking about uh, so, sorry, I'm really getting uh, distracted here. Uh, hold on one second, Jeff. Okay, sure. Yeah, I'm really enjoying this conversation. Uh, It's a lot of fun to talk about these kind of instances. You know, this is really what um, late-night AM radio could be if it were really free to discuss a lot of things uh, rather than just uh, silly UFOs and and this type of nonsense that they uh, bring on there. Okay, Uh, sorry about that, Jeff. That's all right. Ah, my woman was. Uh, we go on for a long time, so I understand that. You, you know how they are. Yeah, anyway, yeah so believe me. <laughs> so uh, all tradition teaches us that uh, at the end of of the dark age doesn't come, uh, you know, light gray or dark gray, but another golden age. That that's what uh, all the traditions have. And so at the end of Ragnarok, you, you get Vidar who uh, returns from hell and. Uh, Establishes an even greater order than ha- than had existed previously. This, so this is this is equivalent to uh, with the Hindus with Brahma opening his eyes, right? Precisely. Yeah. That's what I'm, that's what I'm saying. The the, the gentleman uh, asking me if Odinism and uh, traditionalism are incompatible uh, sort of answered his own question by bringing up Ragnarok, since Ragnarok is the story of the end of the Dark Age, and after it, uh, you know, comes a new Golden Age. Uh, that the Asir uh, are once again uh, given this the term you just said? Yasir? Golden Age? No, Yasir. The, the, Asir, the, the Asir, the gods. Okay. Are, are once again given I don't know this word. What is this word? The, the Asir, the gods? Yeah, how do you spell this? A-E-S-I-R. Okay, okay. The A and the E are together. Okay. You know? uh, versus, you know, the Asir and the Vanir are the, are the two families of gods in, in uh, the Nordic worldview. Let's just, uh, just take a little digression here. What, what, uh, what are, what's the difference between these two families of gods? What, what are they? How, tell us about them. Well, in the, uh, 
the traditional uh, perspective, I guess I would say that the um, Asir are your solar gods and uh, your uh, Vanir are your uh, Demeterian or lunar earthly gods. So okay. we know that, for instance, so that you know, I know enough to know that the swastika is a solar symbol. Precisely. What, so would, be, what would be a what would be a lunar symbol? Uh, a lunar symbol would be anything without a center. Hmm. Um. Anything without an axis around which to uh, okay. to flow. So, uh, but Maya, the Mayan religion is is a very uh, dematerian religion. Uh, it's different from, say, Aztec religions, which were uh, and comparable to more, say, Pueblo Indian religions, which uh, <clears throat> which are quite dematerian in their character and uh, have have a sort of Amazonian sort of uh, component. We'd, this is another term I'll have to kind of ask you to kind of bring us up to speed on. What's dematerian? Uh, Demeter, uh, the the, the uh, god. The oh, Demeter. Goddess. Okay, okay, yeah, right, the Greek right. god Demeter. Okay. Right. Uh, that was the underworld god, right? Precisely. She's the, the the underworld god of the the subterranean and the catonic, the lunar. Was she not the uh, like the wife of Hades? Correct. Okay. Right. Right. Uh, versus your Olympian solar gods who uh, conquered it. Evola says that uh, a traditional society is characterized by a great number of solar cults and a limited number of lunar cults. You have an anti-traditional society when the lunar cults outnumber the the solar cults. Uh, Now, is not Judaism lunar? uh, Judaism is uh, the anti-tradition par excellence, yes. Yeah. Uh, uh, Evola calls the Jews history's demolition squads. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's pretty good. Yeah, so Judaism Judaism is, is a lunar is a lunar cult. Right. So, sorry for all the digressions. I was getting uh, a bit distracted by my woman. But to answer the gentleman's question, Odinism uh, is a very traditional religion. Uh, our myth follows the, the exact line of thought that you find in uh, all traditional religions. And uh, Ragnarok is a great example of uh, the story of the cataclysm that ends the, tradici- the, that ends the Dark Age and... Uh, after which follows a period of uh, great rejoicing and a new golden age. Now, I'm going to get to your question here in Northammer in just a second, but, you know, while we're on this question here, it's quite interesting in that, in that you know, we here as white nationalists, we're, we're, we focus very much upon uh, highlighting the differences between us and other uh, groups, uh, other races. And, and this is very important for us, and it's good that we do this. But what's also interesting about this tradition stuff is that uh, other groups also share in 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 a variation, in a kind of a, in a, in a musical variation. You know, you can have like a uh, a Bach number or a Beethoven number, and you can you can do a variation on it so that it's different. But you can kind of recognize the tune, right? You can kind of recognize the piece by Bach or Beethoven, but it's been done differently. And, uh, you know, so you have these Mayans and the Hindus, and, and of course, you have the Aryans. And, and, you know, you can kind of, like, look at the similarities in, in these beliefs uh, between the three of these, uh, you know, particularly the Hindu, I guess, because they were invaded by Aryans at one time. But it's, it's quite well, interesting. Well, all of them were, Jeff. Uh, when you talk about, basically, okay. the, the Hyperborean cycle and then the Atlantean cycle, both, both coming out of uh, one from uh, north to south and the other from west to east, 
both spreading the uh, conquering Indo-Aryan religion and the, the uh, corollary, cor corollary worldview that goes along with it. And, you know, there's, there's a reason that all these religions are the same, why they all have the same underpinning, and that's because they're, they're all the product of the same people. And when, when our people went out and spread these I'm not saying that the majority of the population at these areas was... was so you're pure. saying that the origins, are, are, the origins of all these beliefs are with Aryans. Absolutely. And I'm also saying that in, in the Golden Age, all substratum of society participated within the order in a meaningful way. It's only in, in, in the modern world that uh, you know, these other races have lost their place as well as we have. It's, it's, you know, we're not the only ones losing out in this game. What, now, what's also interesting, and we touched upon just earlier, Robert, is um, the Jews. And the Jews seem to be the one group... I mean, I've always said in talking on these broadcasts that, look, white nationalists, we really don't have an argument with other groups, and that if we are left alone in our own territory, we don't make any claims on any other groups. And I'll make even a further claim that uh, there's no reason why uh, uh, we could have world peace if we could deal with the Jewish problem. And and the Jews seem, even in this esoteric, even in, in this religious discussion we're having, they seem to be the odd group here as well. And 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 they seem to be, as you know, you mentioned Evola called them the what the the wrecker of of tradition or something like that. History's demolition squads. What, 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 why are they so different, uh, Robert? And and I'm keeping them in terms that we're talking about tonight. Is there is there really there really is something about their religion, isn't there? They're demons. Uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, basically, that that's the case. Yeah, Stryker once said that the. Uh, the idea, the personification of, of the devil as the personification of all evil assumes the living shape of the Jew, and I think he was quite right. They're just anti-traditional to the extreme, and uh, I think it's sad that a lot of traditionalists refuse to acknowledge that. Like, you'll see Evola's works from which uh, his anti-Jewish comments have been excised, and uh, it's just a, an attempt to uh, ride the tiger, I suppose, by getting along with the modern world, but... They don't seem to realize that what Evola had in mind when he talks about riding the tiger is what he says in his own words, using the, the poison against the poisoners. You know, you're supposed to be fighting these people in the neurosemiotic Kulturkampf. You're not supposed to be just uh, riding their coattails because it suits your own agenda at the given time. This brings us back to, we, we, we went off in a million different directions here, Robert. <laughs> but this Sorry, brings us God. back to this, this thing with cremation. And 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 uh, and one of the things I, I found really fascinating in in revolt against the modern world. There's always little there's always little um, uh, footnotes in that book that are quite interesting. And and he talked about um, and also uh, Northammer has a question along these lines too, which I'll elucidate a little further in a second. Uh, he said that uh, our ancestors believed that uh, when you buried someone, they became slaves of the earth. And, Correct. And, and that's why our and so uh, that's why our ancestors cremated. Uh, they burned mainly. They 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 cremated the dead. Uh, and uh, because and would this also be tied in with this idea of the lunar gods? Uh, sure. Just okay. as the fire is tied in with the whole notion of the solar gods and the perennial sacred fire, which we're all guarding. 
Huh. Which is a recurrent theme in all of Evola's writings. Huh. And I guess that's where we get, like, the eternal flame. Uh, Precisely. Uh-huh. Interesting. That, that's exactly where it comes so from. So some, the some of these ideas continue to, to, to kind of seep through the Christian veneer, right? Oh, yeah. There, there were uh, much of Christianity. It's starting Only now is Christianity really starting to assume its true face because the, for so long we were grafting our own identity onto it. Especially in the Middle Ages, that's yes. why uh, with the Ghibelline Middle Ages, you see the last great flicker of tradition in the West, uh, as Evola called it. That is and a tr- that is a, folks. If you read if you read any book in that in that in that book, Revolt Against the Modern World, read the Ghibelline Middle Ages, and uh, and that is a fan- that is an amazing it's a good chapter. chapter. Yeah, it is. Yeah, yeah, and and it it changed my my idea about the Middle Ages started to change actually a long time before that, and uh, and. Uh, 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 I, I started really learning about the feudal system. And, and the feudal system, I'll go off on this tangent for a second, Robert. And the feudal system was really quite varied. It depends where you were in Europe. And also, it also lasted such a long time. Uh, and, and so, it, you know, you're talking about, you know, different eras in the feudal system, in fact. But, you know, the really. Also, ma- a difference between feudalism and manorialism, Jeff. There is, uh, as well. And, but the, the thing from this period that, that is. Um, uh, that you know, I took out it that was quite healthy for for Aryans was is that, and I've mentioned this many times, is that in in the healthier times in in medieval society, society was had many layers that went up and down with many layers, and you had you know a, a, an aristocracy that was really uh, generally meant to be that way. Uh, be these were people who 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 fought their way to the top, and who led men into battle, and and, and, and you know and 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 defended a tradition and and then at the same time you had each of these little layers linked to each other where the 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 uh the layer below owed service to that above but if you were above you owed obligation to them below that is you 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 couldn't you know you you couldn't just like with capitalism the worst aspects of capitalism you couldn't just throw these people to the to the wind you know you you had to you know make sure that uh you know care for them in some respects so society was linked in many in many ways, and you know, I think this is probably, uh, probably this kind of situation probably you know was a Germanic tradition long before the Middle Ages as well. Have you read the book uh, by Ernst Kantowitz called uh, Friedrich des Weide? No. It's about uh, the Hohenstaufen Emperor Friedrich II, and yes. it's, an abs- it's a fantastic book. Uh, they, they, they call my professor of uh, Middle Ages civilization actually called Kantowitz a Nazi, even though he was a Jew who fled the <laughs> Reich in terror. <laughs> but just because he, he paints an accurate portrayal of the great Hohenstaufen Emperor and uh, does so w- without you know the normal Jew begging and character assassination and such. So, so because he, he presents an undistorted view of, of a great German hero, he's considered a Nazi. That's all it takes these days. But anyway, I'd recommend anyone uh, read Kantowitz's work, uh, Friedrich des Weide. He, he's better known for uh, his other mi- medieval history works, but uh, Friedrich des Weide is a, a great book and uh, a look at one of uh, the true Aryan heroes. He was considered the Antichrist in his day. <laughs> now, w- Robert... Uh, You've done an awful lot for us here, and, and we've got we've got even more comments coming in. Remember to send your your, your comments 
to uh, if you want to call come on the show, uh, you know you can ask too. Uh, uh, you know, just send a comment, a chat message. We have another one actually that come in, but I have not quite finished with with North. But, oh, I want to say, insofar as you can remember these sources that you've talked about tonight, Robert, in in the Free Talk Live thread, perhaps after the show or tomorrow or something. Uh, people that want to read up on on the on the author, you said that in German, and I would never be able to figure out how to spell that in English. If you if you could put that in the Free Talk Live thread, I know I want to read some of these things. And, Certainly. And uh, but I want to follow up with what Northhammer said. Um, he said uh, this is on on the cremation uh, subject. He said, "Can you explain the significance and meaning of a funeral pyre versus cremation?" Well. Um they're basically the same thing. Okay. Uh, you're, you're, crema- you're cremated on a funeral pyre. Okay, so they're really... Uh, he, he must... If there is some... Is there, uh, North Hampshire, if there's something you wanted to add if to there's that. some deeper nuance of the question, okay. I'll be happy to tackle it for him, but yeah, basically it, they're the, the same thing. Uh, you, you cremate the person through the right of the funeral pyre. Yeah. Okay, and this is a... This is a Cowboy Zeke came in here, and <coughs> he says... Um, I wanted to ask your guest a question, if possible, since the revelations of the Kennewick man. Now, we were touching on this earlier, this idea that all these religions, these uh, traditional religions, were were seeded by Aryans. Um, that's very interesting, and we'll talk about this, this in a little bit more in a second. Since the revelations of Kennewick man and the mooring holes in the Midwestern part, excuse me, excuse me, in the Midwestern part of the uh, section of the United States, do you think that the ideas of the end times which the Incans, as well as their religious behaviors, uh, may have been given to them by Vikings? Uh, a second part is that what are your beliefs uh, about the end times again? Very interesting, this end times business. Uh, are mathematically calculated or scientifically foreseen? Uh, well, first of all, I'll tackle the first one, which is... Uh Vikings, I'd certainly believe that Northmen were in the country before uh, the, any of the, uh, the so-called American Indians. Uh, <clears throat> the later cycle, the Atlantean cycle, took place 10,000 B.C., so we're talking uh, long before the Vikings. So I wouldn't say it was the Vikings who did it, but certainly men of their stock, general uh, Hyperborean, Atlantean uh, Aryans. And uh, I do believe that the Vikings were here that perhaps they uh, set up uh, settlements that uh, <clears throat> endured or they simply left, I'm not sure. I've, I've certainly read the, the Vinland sagas, and uh, I'm familiar with uh, the, the quests over here. But uh, so, so the answer to your question is, um, yes, I think it was Aryans. No, I don't think it was Vikings. And uh, to tackle the, the question about uh, apocalypticism, I, I guess, um, well, tradition is pretty clear that... Uh, the world will be destroyed through fire, and I would uh, pretty much wage that that'll be a, a nuclear fire. But that's just a, uh, a speculation. Guess. Yeah. Now, w- one thing. One thing about about this business is so fascinating. Now, uh, on this last Goy fire, and of course in the newspapers too, they had this story come out about the mooring stones, and the for for the listeners that aren't aware of this. Uh, they found these, uh, they're terming them Viking mooring stones, but um, they're stones that the Vikings used, the types that they used. Uh, they're enormous stones, and then they had 
the Vikings, let's just say, for make it simple, uh, bored holes into them so they could, uh, I, I guess, put a rope through it and then hold their ship. Now, uh, some of these mooring stones that are being found, alleged mooring stones that are being found in the Midwestern part of the United States, gosh, you know, uh, it really was tens of thousands of years before there was that sort of, uh, there, there was a body of water in, in, in the uh, center of the United States. That, that's fascinating. It sure is. Uh, you know, I mean, obviously someone bored a hole in the middle of there uh, in those rocks. Uh, uh, and, of course, the the Kennewick man business, which has been mentioned endlessly uh, in white nationalist circles, uh, this, uh, this artifact, uh, was it not either destroyed or, 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 or buried uh, uh, to keep uh, researchers away from it? Well, they they do that with everything that comes out like that. They couldn't get that Kennewick man buried fast enough because uh, they don't want anything that pr- gives lie to their whole notion of uh, the Indians being the noble savages whom we destroyed with our hubris and our... <laughs> it's nonsense. Boy, this really uh, opens up a lot of interesting questions. I mean, if Aryans were in this continent uh, tens of thousands, at least 10,000 years ago, did these anim- did these savage Indians, uh, we'll call them that, uh, did these savages, did, did they kill them off? Probably. Uh, <laughs> we, we have a tendency to do that <laughs> ourselves, so I wouldn't be surprised if uh, Demeterian people like that did it. For example, there's, there's always been that uh, controversy over what happened in England, whether the Germanic people went there as sort of raiding parties and destroyed... The uh, the Celts, or whether they moved as uh, families and and family units, as the Germanic people are wont to do, and whether there was a genocidal aspect to it. And I I think there was. I think that they probably uh, just showed up in in family units, but slaughtering the uh, the Celts who were there, because that's a a natural impulse to uh, defend your territory. Okay, it's ten o'clock, Robert, and we'll we'll do uh, if you can, if you're up to it. I know you you did. Um, uh, the, uh, uh, the 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 uh, socialist radio. Uh, uh, what's the name of the program again? ANSWP presents. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I know. I know you did that before coming on this broadcast. So, uh, if you could just maybe finish up another half hour, if, if sure. you can, and uh, and we'll give a chance for. Uh, we we still have a lot of listeners. Uh, uh, there's people out there that are very interested in this topic. And, as long uh, as folks aren't grown bored, I'll stay. Yeah, and let's um, let's let's play a couple songs, and we'll, we'll give uh, me uh, we'll give you and I a chance to take a take a rest here, and we'll be we'll be right back. Vanguard Radio, no Jews, just right. <laughs> 